Hey nerds, what's up? Welcome once again to This Week in Mormons. It's great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to be a part of our of our wonderful Latter-day Saint news and commentary family. I am Jeff Openshaw, the founder of This Week in Mormons, and I have the privilege of being joined this week by none other than congressional candidate for Utah's third himself, Devin Thorpe. Woohoo! Now, but, but we have to go back. Uh, you introduced yourself without mentioning your three-week-old baby, and I, I know you've probably talked about the baby before on the show, but let's get an update. Well, that's not uh, my title, so I don't say, you know, <laughs> I am the founder and once again father. Yeah, yes, so. no, but once again father is the most important title. It this is. is the first time I have recorded since we had our kid. Oh, so well, congratulations. Then on behalf you. of all the listeners. Thank you. Congratulations. Very nice. Very nice of you. We had we had another had another baby boy. We've got three boys. That's just how we roll. And uh he's he's great. He came a little bit earlier than planned. Um, but everything went fine. The hospital stay was a bit rougher than previous ones, not just because of coronavirus precautions. That was one layer, but uh Otherwise, but stuff went well. He's healthy. He's good. He was a, he was just an ounce shy of nine pounds. Big boy. Big kid, yeah. And uh, he's growing fine. Everyone's recovering okay. Now he's home. And uh, we had a a good, safe time there. So he's a, he's a cute little nugget. We're having fun with him. And he's healthy? He's healthy, you know. We're just trying to figure out uh, which one he, like who he looks like and all the usual stuff. And Danielle's recovering. Yeah, she's doing fine. She's doing okay. So we're we're getting there. We are we've crossed into the new territory though. So my sister, my wonderful sister, um, I'll try not to tear up as I talk about this. Uh my sister is a teacher in Arizona, and obviously her school year, at least in person, was cut short because of COVID issues. Uh she's been doing remote teaching like a lot of teachers. Uh so she offered, she drove out here at great personal time and sacrifice and a lot of hassle in terms of keeping herself safe on the road in terms of like disinfecting everything and interacting with as minimal stuff as she could on the way out. So she drove all the way out here from Arizona to our DC home and, uh, and stayed with us, which was fun anyway, but, um, it was just a huge blessing. It was wonderful to have her here with us because initially, of course, my in-laws were going to come in for the birth of the baby as they have with their other kids, but they canceled their plans because of being at risk, you know, with flying and, and their age. Uh, same for my mom. And we didn't know what we were going to do, quite frankly, basically who's going to watch our kids. Cause at this point I was the only one even allowed to go to the hospital. They couldn't even visit, but like, who's going to watch my other boys while we have right. to go to the hospital for a couple of days. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. So that that was a big stressor. We had some options that w- would work, but she really pinch hit hard, like and it was su- it was such a relief. Food and locked doors was that the other option? Yeah, I guess right. Lord of the Flies for the two of them. Yeah. Um, but she, my sister came, and I just want to tell her how much I love and appreciate her because it was a lot easier when we scrambled to the hospital at four in the morning to go wake her up and say, "All right, it's happening," and she said, "Cool." And our boys adore her, and they just played and hung out for a couple of days until we came back. And she's been she was here helping out while my wife was recovering from the initial surgery and stuff. Um, and she just wow. she just took off yesterday, so she she got called back, and uh, we miss her a ton already. So we're only now entering the phase where it's just the five of us and we have no other familial support for the time being. But uh, you, you that was, a, that was sure. <clears throat> Sorry to interrupt. You need to be sure to post the uh, uh, 80s day trader photo with the uh, <laughs> with this podcast so people can see the beautiful baby. So it's, well, maybe, I mean, I kind of like guard my kids identity publicly since this, I don't know. We'll see. Um, the main reason you're referring to that, Devin, is yes, he was born with a lot of hair, a whole lot of hair. My other boys had normal hair, and then one of them even lost hair. Like he looked, he went bald like a middle aged man and then grew it back. Um, our newest one was born with a full mop, just complete mop of dark brown hair. It's like two or three inches long already. That's why. We've, me- we've measured it. He has a ton of hair. So we tried after a bath, I tried kind of Gordon, Gordon geckoing him yeah. a little bit. Uh, slick it back and it just poofs up. It's, just, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. So much hair. So we're doing okay. That was a long way to talk about me, but thanks for asking. We're uh, stuff's humming along. I'm glad to still be doing twim here. Extra shout out for my wife, who the day after Mother's Day is now putting children in bed while I record this podcast that nets us effectively no money. But here I am anyway. It's a lo- it's a labor of love that people need their twim. They need their twim. Yes, they need it. 
Well, do thank her for me because I think you're doing this now to accommodate my schedule. Uh, so please. Well, we have to because last time I now, – now, correct me if I'm wrong as far as the, the race is going. You've cleared the group stage, right? Now you're off to the final? Yes, that what's going that's on? right. So I, I am the official Democratic nominee for uh, the 3rd District uh, congressional seat. So, uh, yes, there were two competitors uh, in the in the convention. And uh, I was very fortunate to come out with 82% of the vote, which was enough to avoid wow. a primary. And yeah, yeah, I imagine the primary cutoff was probably something like, what, if you got at least 60, you avoided yeah, a, run, a runoff or something like that? Yeah. yeah, if you get 60%, you avoid the runoff. Well, that's awesome. So where do they hold the, the Democratic convention in Utah? Does everyone just get together at Benchmark Books and calls it a morning? <laughs> or do all, do all 12 of you show up in one place? Or how does that work out? Usually they hold it at the uh, – they rotate which Starbucks it's held at. Yeah, sure. No, uh, the, 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 the schedule, the plan was to do it up in Logan on uh, USU campus, as I understand it. But, oh, okay, cool. Uh, the plans were just really getting finalized when they had to cancel them. So we, it was all, this is a Zoom con- convention. And now, now I, there's a certain irony here, though, Devin, because I have it on good authority that the entire coronavirus is a conspiracy from the Democrats, <laughs> is what I've been seeing. <laughs> And, and even part of it is sacrificing your own state convention for, for appearances, right? So yeah, please continue. For, yeah, that's it's, right. very, it's, yeah. a, it's a curious thing that they would do. Yeah, that, but yes. yeah that, that's interesting. Uh, it, it wasn't the Democrats that were buying Zoom stock in January, though. <laughs> or dumping stocks right before that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Um, so, anyway. Well, that's cool. So, how we don't we don't have to do the whole political thing, but just like how's that going? You're, you're yeah, interesting. It's, yeah, it's with, going well. It's going. How do you well. respond to someone who might say running as a Democrat in Utah third is a quixotic effort? It, if someone were to, yeah, I would say that? yes, it is quixotic, no doubt about it. But, but uh, what's happened in this race is something interesting. Uh, there is a third party candidate running as the true Trump supporter. Yes. Uh, Split so, the vote. Split the vote. Yeah. So if you are listening and you are a Trump supporter, I want you to remember the name Daniel Clyde Cummings. That sounds that, like a Trump. Yes. That That is the name to remember. If you are uh, a MAGA hat wearing, Trump loving uh, listener, Please memorize the name Daniel Clyde Cummings. And I think we have a lot of those on this show. Well, look at this. I'm looking at Ballotpedia here. Daniel Clyde Cummings looks unhappy. <laughs> I'm not saying he's unhappy. I'm not. I'm not. There's no form of libel going on here. But he looks unhappy. Yeah, he uh, slander. I, I've watched him on television in a debate, and he's a much happier looking guy when you animate him. He, he may not be very photogenic, but he he he's passionate. So he's officially uh, running as the Constitution Party. I see. Yes, okay. that's right. Yes. Oh, he also ran. Um, wait a minute. He, he Ballotpedia. I don't know if I'm assuming it's updated, but it says he is also running for election for president of the United States. He you can run for two offices at once, apparently. Which yeah, I think that's, was I had forgotten that he was running for president too. So uh, he's going to have both things. He's going to be the first ever president and congressman. Yeah, <laughs> concurrently. Yeah, remember I mean, like his name. Gerald Gerald Ford took that route by being in Congress and then being appointed VP, and then Nixon left. So he had to take a couple of steps. But Daniel Clyde Cummings is just going to do it all, all at once. One election. There you go. Wow, that's fabulous. Well, I, I hope it's. Uh, I hope you're having a good time campaigning and driving around in your electric vehicle. I, I did. I went on, on Saturday, I drove all around Carbon and Emory counties and uh, I just keep reflecting all we, you know, for the last 48 hours, I just keep thinking how fun that was, uh, you know, visiting sort of every little remote corner of Carbon County, especially in this trip. And I just saw some of the coolest things like this little tiny mining town of Clear Creek in Carbon County. It's just uh-huh. amazing. It's tiny little, beautiful little town. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about probably a hundred residents. It's not really even a town. It, ha- it yeah. has a place name, but I don't think it's incorporated. Um, 
but just darling little homes and uh, cute, nice people. Um, not surprisingly, some Trump supporters among the coal miners, uh, but it was just a beautiful little town. So anyway, it was just a great day, great day getting out there and driving around in my little electric car. That's cool. How do people receive you out in that neck of the woods? Yeah, um, pretty well, pretty well. Yeah. Now, I mean, now, are you doing much retail politics in the current environment, though? I'm, you know, with yeah, or, um, right? Like, are you meeting people, or is everyone just shut in right now? I I, I did meet a few people, um, not a lot of people, but a few people. It's just you know, it's uncomfortable to talk to people without a face mask on, and it's uncomfortable to talk to people with a face mask on. So it's it's uncomfortable. That just sounds to me like you're an introvert. That's there is that. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> so I do re- rely on my car to do some of my messaging. Uh, there we go. It was, it was fun, though. One of the things that happened on, you know, I was down in Price. Um, and, you know, so I'm 100 miles from home. And I had a few people wave at me as if they recognized me. So that was nice. That, oh, look at you. You're a celebrity. You get what I experience all the time every time I go to Utah. I'm sure. I'm sure people, you know, there's the twim guy. No, it's just mobs. It's mobs. unreal. Yeah. They've had to shut down the gateway uh, entirely. It turns out I thought it was because of me. It's really just because City Creek opened and now nobody goes to the gateway. <laughs> so let's move on to some news, shall we? I'm going to lead off this week with uh, news that just dropped today in the few hours before we recorded. Uh, the church is going out of its way to update guidelines for art in meeting houses, but in particular for foyers or foyers to the fancy among you and the entryways of the building. So not even the whole building, but specifically access points to the building, basically, uh, to reflect a, quote, deeper reverence for Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a letter that came out from the first presidency that, well, we can cue it up here, that just goes in more, it's shorter, but it just says, you know, the the church has, da, 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 the placement of art representing Jesus Christ in meeting house foyers and entryways has been authorized. Local facilities managers will contact and work with stake presidents to evaluate foyers. There's going to be foyer evaluations mm-hmm. now. Uh, in order to deem what is worthy and what is wrong. There's full principles to follow on this. This is not just some willy-nilly thing. Um, there's, let's see, five bullet point guidelines, which I'll read to you if you want to look. I'll try to paraphrase these. But basically, you have to place existing artwork that depicts the Savior himself or the Savior ministering to others in the meeting house entries and foyers. Okay, make sure it's in good condition. If you have other artwork in those places, move it to another location or remove it entirely. Um, you can choose replacement art from the approved selection of foyer artwork, which is a proper noun. That's an actual thing you can access and follow approved sizes and quality standards. Um, you can, and then you assess the entries and foyers as part of an annual inspection to evaluate existing furnishings, artwork, and finishes and replace and update as needed. Uh, also you have to remove from the foyer areas, distractions such as display cases, bulletin boards, tables, easels, and of course, damaged furniture. That's the you know the, the big one there. Um, this is an interesting effort in my mind, and and this also includes a list of the approved uh, pictures of yeah. the Savior, which which is probably I want to say what about twenty or so, maybe twenty four pictures, yeah, something like that. About that. About a that. lot of the classic ones you've seen, a lot of Simon Dewey, some Block, some Del Parson. Um, some of the classic ones you've seen all the time, you know, the, uh, the Del Parson one, the portrait of Jesus, the second coming by Harry Anderson, Walter Rain, Walter Rain, Michael Mann, pretty, r- pretty ones that you're accustomed to. Where, where, where'd that one go though? There's this one, they showed a picture of Jesus with an African. There it is. Yeah. The worth oh, of worth, Elizabeth worth Lemon Swindle. Yeah. That's the only one that jumps out as me as anything newer. Yeah, yeah, that's that is probably one of the newest ones. I was interested that some of the there's there's a a very popular painting of Christ in in Mormon chapels that I really don't like. <laughs> is <laughs> it on the list? On the list, it's not on the list. So I which was one? pleased to see that one was. Which one, which one is that? Um, I, nope. I I can't remember the name of the artist, and I wouldn't want to embarrass her by naming her. But uh, yeah, I was glad to see that one not on the list. I'm a little all of these are my favorites. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Block, and so I love some of his. 
I'm disappointed though. I'm a huge proponent of Jorge Coco. And I'm sad that he's not here. Yeah. Are you familiar with his work? No, no I'm not. He's, a, he's an Argentinian. Uh, you know it if you saw it. The church has used it. Like his stuff's in some of our manuals. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and I'm a big fan of that. It's a little more, uh, I want to call it impressionist, but it's uh, it definitely involves his interpretation as for, as opposed to something more straightforward. Yeah. So, so we have these guidelines and I, I mean, I'm mostly fine with it. Right. I, I guess part of this, the, my, my, uh, my correlation siren goes off mm-hmm. when stuff like this happens. I mean, I know we, we want, of course we want to focus on the savior. So at the end of the day, there's nothing, there's nothing bad about this per se. I suppose it's more that what has previously been a, there's been, there's been an approved list of artwork, but it's been largely left to stake presidents and, and agent bishops to decide how to decorate the meeting house for the most part. Mm-hmm. And now this is Salt Lake essentially coming down and saying, you can sort of do what you want, but you got to choose from this list. Here's the, and there's other guidelines to follow. You do not have flexibility to do other things anymore. Get in line. Correlation 2.0. Yeah. Uh, so that part of it kind of makes me sad, but maybe it makes me more sad that we weren't just doing this well enough in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And we yeah. had to have somebody the, tell us to do it. The thing that I find intriguing is that I can picture a lot of chapels that have display cases and bulletin boards prominently displayed in what I would call the foyer. And yeah, I yeah. wonder where some of that stuff is going to go. Um, and yeah. And I do too. Cause when we first talked about, we were talking about this a little bit offline and I thought of like, I don't usually see display cases or bulletin boards, but I do see outside of, in most foyers, just outside the chapel, there's almost always a table with some easels that just have, you know, announcements or events or things that are just things of that nature that are right outside because obviously you put them in a prominent place to promote awareness and inclusivity and all that. And I guess that's, I guess that's out now. Does this also mean that for the, the meeting houses that put up Christmas trees and do, you know, toy drives and things like that, I'm assuming that's verboten under these guidelines as well. Yeah. That's how I read that. That's how I read that. So So that's kind of, that's kind of interesting because I feel like in some of those, it's good to focus on the savior, but I wonder if we will sacrifice any of the community spirit that we try Mm -hmm. to instill as you, as if you, if you're coming there for the first time, yes, you want to see that we're a Christ centered church, but I I do think there's a benefit to also seeing that this is an active community that has things going on and you could be a part of it. Right. So not second guessing. I I would hate for people not to participate in that stuff because we don't have a good, alternative form of communication. Well, it's bad enough that none of our, I don't know. I've, I've never found out the reason for this. So twin listeners, I bet one of you knows we don't ever put our meeting times for sacrament meetings on our signs on the church sign. That's like on the street or on the curbside, right? Like whatever we have, the logo of the church, that little plaque, the stone, whatever it might be that says, here's the church. Unlike a lot of our like evangelical uh, brothers and sisters, we never post church times. We always say visitors welcome, but we don't give, we don't reduce the barriers to entry for them actually showing up at a certain time. I don't know. I'm assuming there's a rule involved in that other than the hassle of changing the times around when needed. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should post the times. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think posting times is a good idea. We should post the times so people who pass by know that they can just show up if they want. No yeah. question. Yeah. Well, well, that's all I have to say about that, Devin. Okay. This is my, this is my segue. Okay. Should yeah. we talk to uh, a little bit about uh, uh, airport dropping off missionaries? Oh, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Now, it, you may not be super dialed into this in D.C. because it probably isn't a problem there. But uh, in Utah, it gets to be... Um, not only a practical problem, but a huge PR nightmare when uh, Mormons descend on the airport in big crowds during the coronavirus. And, and so it just looks like uh, it makes the church look bad, even though in the past the church has been pretty good about creating guidelines for this. The The church members have often violated those guidelines and and I understand why uh you know I 
I used to get annoyed sometimes when I would uh, see the uh, crowds at the airport. And then I, I got thinking, well, you know, if my son were to go on a mission and come home, uh, well, to start, uh, we would hire the U of U marching band to work. <laughs> and we would go from there. There would be cheerleaders, yeah. uh, you know, the, the whole thing. And so I kind of get it. Um, but, but in, you know, during these, the day of coronavirus, uh, I think the church is wise to, to really reinforce this message that, that he just can't do it. He just can't do it because if even a dozen people from each family and a dozen missionaries go out at one time, suddenly you've got 144 people uh, hugging and laughing and touching, and it's just not not a good situation. Selective obedience is a really funny thing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, uh, we all do it to a degree, and and this is this is one good example because this was the church published a letter last week. Very clearly in response to what happened at the end of March, when a lot of missionaries were <clears throat> thrown on charter flights, especially international missionaries or Americans serving internationally, um, they were butted on charter flights, and you had mobs of families hanging out in the parking lot or the parking structure at Salt Lake City International Airport, totally not doing following social distancing protocol in any way, shape, or form. And this was a this made like you said this made the church look bad. It made us look bad like we were not on board in general as members of the community and civic leaders and church leaders expressed their displeasure. And now I think they're going out of their way to be very, very, very clear. Like do not get in groups. Don't shake hands. Don't hug. Obey all social distancing measures. Wear a mask. Don't mess around. Yeah. <laughs> like, stop this. Yeah. And, and congregating at the airport has been a problem in Utah for so long. I mean, President Hinckley was trying to went after this back in like 04, 05. Yeah. Good. Because they said, stop um, you know, mobbing the baggage claim. This has always been the issue at the airport there, Everyone after 9-11 especially. Everyone just hanging out the baggage claim, just ruining it for anybody else who's not there to get a missionary when you've got groups of 30 people meeting a missionary. And we have a hard time just settling down from that. And it's kind of funny because I see when we posted, we posted this story. And I saw comments very quickly, no doubt. That said things like "screw this," I'm going to like see off my son or daughter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I get I like you just said I get where people are coming from. Yeah, but it's funny that we would receive a directive from the brethren with it like no less than an hour prior, and we can immediately say, "No way am I following that." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and oftentimes these are there's a lot of people in the church who are very follow the prophet mindset on a lot of things. So it's funny, like I said, how we're choosy. I think the last time I saw this much pushback was last year when the church uh, formally banned firearms in meeting houses. And here you have church leadership saying, don't do this. And people just say, yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Because I know better than the prophet. And like I said, we all do it to a degree. I am certainly not without blemish in this yeah. regard, yeah. but I yeah. feel like I can step back and at least kind of see that we all do it in a way. And it's, it's amusing that we all selectively obey when we yes. do not. And, and the, the, the irony of course, or the, the corollary at least is that we all look down on the people who follow the prophet differently. Uh, as if the other way of doing it is not as good as our way of selectively choosing, which guidance to follow. So yes, we, we all do it. We all do it. And we all are a little judgy. But And the church uh, has been so clear about so much of this. I mean, the very fact, like after general conference, there were a number of people who I, I saw comments, wished the church would have spoken even more directly, like very, very on the nose about social distancing, about what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they have by and large, but I also think the very fact that we had general conference, not in the conference center with the brethren clearly practicing social distancing in front of us and keeping everyone else at arm's length. Um, like that was clearly teaching us something like, Hey, we're taking this seriously. You should yes. too. Look at our example. Like, we don't have to have everything spelled out for us, <laughs> dotting all of our I's and crossing our T's uh, just to obey. I mean, the example has been put forth and I don't think, church leadership has backed off from any of that. They keep saying, obey your civic leaders yeah. and be smart with all of this COVID stuff. It's not over yet, people. It's really easy to let our guard down and we're all exhausted from it. We are. Everyone is, right? But Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting that we haven't talked about enough 
is the fact that by closing down our worship around the world in this pandemic, the church has saved thousands of lives, maybe tens of thousands. No doubt. And maybe more than that, um, because in some communities in the Western United States, especially, but also in other countries, you know, you think about uh, the number of, you know, the proportion of church members in some small countries scattered around the world. You know, Chile is not a small country. Chile is a big country that has a high proportion of Mormons. There are a million Mormons or something in in Chile. Uh, You know, this is a global impact on shutting down what could have been if the church had gone the other way, if we had been uh, insistent on continuing to do churchy things and using the meeting houses some of the time for some things, you know, the, the churches and the members could have been a vector for spreading this pandemic around the world so much faster. And instead, by shutting down churches and temples, uh, we have set an example. And in Utah, it's powerful because uh, our our um, libertarian streak runs pretty deep in Utah. And by the church standing up and saying, we're going to do this, we're all in, we're shutting it down, no church meetings, no getting together, no home teaching, I guess we call it ministering, now, no ministering, you stay home. Uh, you know, for, for about five weeks, they told us not even t- take the sacrament in to people here in Utah. And I think that just sent a super powerful message that we're, this is for real. And I think you can't count the number of lives that were saved by that decision, especially here in Utah. No doubt. And the funny thing was, I, I remember when all this was going on in March, uh, there were many wondering what the church was going to do. And then we it snowballed pretty quickly. I think it, the church went from being a little bit quiet about all of this, I think, to the point where I was concerned. Like I was bringing it up in bishopric means saying like, we need a contingency plan here because this is not going well. And then in a matter of days, they just shut everything down. And the church got almost ahead of the curve at that point, just saying, close it off. And I think it's been very good, like you said. And we've saved many lives. And it's a funny time to pivot to, of course, how do we come back from this, right? Is it time to come back? That's a whole debate. I am not an epidemiologist. I don't believe Devin is either, despite his many no. skills. And I don't, come, I, don't, I don't claim expertise in these things, but I do like to try to listen to the people who know best. And that involves the scientists and experts. And I think it also involves our prophet who is privy to revelation and can help us understand things. And we need to exercise some faith in that regard. So last week, um, the church put out a video, which... Um, They've changed the headline a little bit. I didn't love the way it was first explained on social media because it basically just said, you know, when will Latter-day Saints return to worship? President Nelson, like, addresses the topic in a new video. And then basically in the video, he just says, all right, we're kind of waiting and seeing right now. So just just keep on keeping on, which is fine. But when you bother to release a video like that, I'm hoping President Nelson's going to say, we're going to start taking action. Stay tuned. Uh <laughs> Instead, it was just like, well, let's just see what happens. But then the funny thing is the next day, the church actually did announce the uh, phased reopening of some temples. That's the first thing. So we're still not going to church together, um, but temples in a very limited capacity have started reopening. These first came out, uh, it was what, May 7th, which I believe was what, last Thursday? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a six-week period when all the temples in the church were closed. and so beginning. Today, when we're recording, it's funny they said Monday, May 11th. Most temples are closed on Mondays, but there's a couple that are open. But they reopened 17 temples solely for living husband and wife sealing ordinances. So what, and you have to be previously endowed. Okay. So that's a very, very, very specific use. All right. You're only going there to get sealed. You cannot go there to receive your endowment if you haven't done so already. That's it. And it was 17 temples in Idaho. Utah, and then Germany and Sweden. Random way of doing things, but hey, mm-hmm. good for you, Sweden. Fa- not doing social distancing, apparently, played in your favor. You get one of the first temples back. Um, let's see. So the list here was, this was phase one of reopening. A lot of the ones you've heard of, pretty much any temple in Idaho, I think almost any temple in Idaho. Let me see here. Yep, basically. And all the Utah temples, and then Stockholm, Sweden, and the two temples in Germany. Yeehaw. Which is great. Uh, this letter did not go into detail to me about, as far as I can tell, whether people were allowed to attend the scene. I mean, you have to have witnesses, but like, 
Could more people come to the ceiling? It's, it did Citizen. allow for a few guests, and it didn't- A very limited number. Yeah, that's all yeah. it says. So a limited number. So that happened. Then, only four days later, the church has announced that they're reopening. They've doubled it now. 34 temples most will be joining the ranks. Uh, more of them stateside, as well as uh, the one in Denmark, uh, and some temples in Asia, like in Seoul, Korea, and in Taiwan. Um, so now the list is expanding, Where, but it's still the same stipulation, only living ceilings, nothing more. That's it. Uh, and I'm assuming this list will keep expanding. I guess my main question though, Devin, because we are epidemiologists, <laughs> is does this, does this seem rushed in that we're trying to take a cautious phased approach to temples reopening? Mm-hmm. And if there's a phase in my mind, that means, cool, we're going to open these 17 temples for like, I don't know. If uh, 10 days or something like that, whatever it might be, make sure we don't have any spikes, see how things go. Mm-hmm. And then we'll open other ones. Instead, they announced a number of temples reopening and then only a few days later, even more before there would ever be a chance to have any data on whether this was a good idea yeah. in the first yeah. place. Right. Um, I'm not in charge, but that did strike me. Like now I fully expect on Wednesday or Thursday of this week for them to say, all right, everybody now the te- and they're just going to keep the phased opening of temples is really just going to be uh, announcing more and more of them are open yeah, like every three or four days, which I hope I, stays I hope, good. I hope they've also got some good protocols in place. Uh, I, you know, I haven't obviously been because I'm not about to be married or have been married in the last few days, but, but it would be, I hope they are really screening people, uh, both patrons and the the workers to make sure that no one is sick, uh, no one has any symptoms. Uh, golly, it even makes sense to have some of the workers tested. I think, but that's what I worry about. I worry about that the most because temple workers, by and large, are seniors and very much they form one of the biggest parts of the at risk population, and that that's the biggest concern to me. Is just that I would hope they're doing some kind of testing. I don't know if we have the gadgets to. I, th- I think we should, at the minimum, take people's temperatures when they come in. Why would you not? Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything. I have no idea if they're going to be doing any yeah, of that. And it's still, ver- and the church has not announced expanded temple work in any capacity beyond that. I think they're just trying to make the blessings of uh, getting into your eternal marriage more accessible for yeah, those who yeah. can do it. And how about like the the people for six weeks who had to get married civilly out the gate? They're going to be a special little group as time goes on. The, oh, the yeah, special little that's, group that's of the new protocol. I'm this will force a new practice that I think will become universal. This this whole pandemic is going to just globally get us in the mode that you get married civilly and then you are sealed after the wedding, after the maybe it's after the honeymoon. Uh, you know, it's correlated with, but not yeah. uh, coincident with the marriage, and certainly doesn't precede it. I, and I think that's a great thing. Just well, so how much more inclusive. Well, and how much of a blessing is it that it's only been what a year and a half or so since they changed the rules for the temples? So you could there was no longer the the quote unquote penalty if you were right. to get married civilly and then have to wait a year. Yeah, and they removed that. I think that was a common sense, compassionate move. Period. But it also seems a bit prophetic in our current environment because it had that not been in place um during coronavirus it would have to do so would have appeared reactive for one i mean they might have done it but at the same time if they didn't you'd have thousands of people who are scheduled to get married over the past six weeks who would with no end in sight now we have one but they didn't have one they might have just said okay let's just get married civilly and we'll wait a year i guess and then get sealed so it's cool we're seeing this. We'll see what else happens in the next few weeks. I hope we don't do too much too quickly. I think we still have a little ways to go until we're going to be having sacrament meeting together once yeah. more. Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's going to be a while before we have sacrament meeting. I could be wrong, but uh, you know, here in Utah, the number of cases diagnosed daily has not really gone down. We're still operating very near the peak. And uh, so until we get that number down, I can't imagine the church is going to at least in here in Utah start having sacrament meeting because it could just explode if we started having sacrament meeting together. Yeah, you've been posting a lot of those stats daily, it seems, on your Facebook, haven't yeah, just you? About, yeah, just about. Uh, my son's been tracking it for the last couple of months. He is uh, an amateur epidemiologist, you might say. He's uh, well, That's good. I'm an amateur brain surgeon. So. <laughs> I'm glad. 
my son has a PhD in physics. He's a data scientist. And so he, his hobby is looking at uh, medical uh, papers and trying to use math to de- determine whether the conclusions of the paper are valid or meaningful. Um, and so he's been doing that for a long time, for years now. And when coronavirus hit, he just has fixated on that. And so he's really been diving deep into the math of coronavirus. In fact, he wrote a paper with his girlfriend that got uh, reported on in a couple of, you know, the general media. So anyway. well, I mean, that means it must be true, like those Bakersfield doctors, because people talked about yeah, it. So, right. it's, so it's true. <laughs> Of course. The, the only peer review you need is social media, people. That's right. That's it. That's, it. That's all I need. That's it. Okay. So let's shift gears and talk about Orem shockingly, as you note, shockingly approving the zoning for the new temple in Orem. What? Can you believe it? I can't believe Orem was okay with this. <laughs> yeah. It is shocking that uh, 90% LDS Orem, Utah, approved the zoning for a new LDS temple. That is shocking. That's good. That's good. That's good. Of course, the interesting thing about that was that the church did display at the uh, zoning hearing some sort of preliminary rendering of the temple, and it does not feature Mm -hmm. a uh, Moroni uh, statue on top, which I think is interesting. Um, I've never been a big fan of the Moroni. Uh, on the temple. And so uh, I thought that is interesting. Uh, You pointed out as we were chatting before the show that a few temples have had them added. uh, I think it was during President Hinckley's tenure. And Mm -hmm. my question for you is, will President Nelson take those down? Take them away? (laughs) I I think it would be a pretty bold move to actually take them off. I don't know. I obviously... Just not including them. from, But the thing is, he's still including them in ones that he hasn't announced as far as we know. Mm. Not all of them. Right. But and we've even had some listeners. We've talked about this before on the show. But uh, I'm trying to bring up a spreadsheet that we have of this. Because there's some he's announced that do and some that below them don't. That's true that we know of. Uh, I'm trying to keep track here. But some do like the – let's see. Which ones did he announce? Anyways, I don't want to bore everybody while I dig around. Yeah, we don't know the reasoning behind the no Moroni, but I want to know why don't you like Moroni? Well, I I just I think um, I have always been kind of a fan of the cross as a symbol, a universal symbol of different church. Devin, get with the times, <laughs> and uh, so I've just felt like the Moroni was our de facto symbol, and it is a crummy symbol of Christ. The cross is universally understood. Uh, And so I I am happy with the church's new uh, symbol, right? Not logo, but symbol. Uh Um, But uh, yeah, I, I kind of not a, not a huge fan. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't resent Moroni. He's a good guy, but uh, (laughs) he's ushering in a new era. You yeah. know, he's announcing things. That's that's the fun of it. Yeah, yeah. He's he's announcing, yeah. But you don't love Moroni. Yeah, I do think it would be weird, though, if we there's people who have wondered uh, whether the Savior should be on the temples. And I think that would be in bad form, personally. Yeah. I just feel like that would be, I feel like that'd be weird. I don't know. Does that seem like it would be weird? Yeah. It'd be, it, it would feel weird in our culture, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to look at temples here. That well, let's, let's think of an example that President Nelson has actually announced. He announced the Leighton Temple, didn't he? Wasn't that his? I don't. Remember. Yeah, he did. Yeah, you're he called the temple, You're the temple so, god. So, so here, well, no, that's a weird way of saying that, Devin. I am not. <laughs> um, okay. The, so, for example, the Leighton Utah Temple does have Moroni. And you've mentioned this about Orem because I don't know if we've seen an official rendering, but if it does look anything like the Tuella Temple, the Tuella Temple is a big deal because I believe it's the first temple of the modern era announced in Utah with no Moroni. The temples without Moroni before were the pioneer era temples. And as you said, they've added them since and that the Provo Temple has a Moroni, did not have one until like 2002 and they added it on. Um, 
But some of these do, some of them don't. I've yet to find out the rhyme or reason. I know one of our listeners wrote in with a great spreadsheet trying to explain what the heck is what. Here, I can tell you the ones that have received a Moroni. Freiburg, Ogden, and then Ogden changed completely. Provo, Sao Paulo, Tokyo, Bern, Switzerland, and London all received Moroni statues. So that's your shortlist for the ones that are going to lose them. Yeah, well, it's the question, right? I don't know. I'm probably the only one that's thinking about that. Uh, it, well, it, it is interesting in that we've become so accustomed to Moroni. Mor- it's just a given, right? You build a temple and Moroni goes on it. That's just something we fully expect. <clears throat> the only one that bucked the trend for a while was the Paris temple, but that was because it has no spire. And so we kind of understood like, well, this is this makes sense. We're not going to have Moroni on the ground <laughs> front, yeah. like 10 feet above you or something like that. Um but then out came temples in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Haiti that were far more austere in general with no Moroni. And now we're seeing more and more of them. And it, this is an ongoing bit of intrigue. And I still haven't found the, the rhyme or reason behind it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of some other quick temple news, my wonderful friends, uh, site work is now underway at the Washington County, Utah Temple. Another newer temple announced by President Nelson that will have a Moroni on it. Okay. Uh, but site work being underway means they're just like doing great. They're just getting, they're prepping the land before they can do foundation work. Yeah. So, so have they had an official ceremonial groundbreaking or do they even do that? I don't think they've done a groundbreaking for that one yet. No, they'll still do it. I mean, obviously the COVID era is making that yeah, less they won't. Yeah. fun. But as far as I know, the groundbreaking for the temple has not been announced. No. Yes. And according I threw, to. I threw the Tuwila temple topic at you. What do I got? I know you love temples. Uh, I love urban planning in general, so this is fun. Yeah. I So I'm an amateur urban planner, Devin. Yes. Uh, which means I am allowed to speak about it because <laughs> it's something that interests me, like your son. Yeah. So, so we've talked about the Tuella Temple quite a bit. Other than not having a Moroni, the style of it's pretty cool. It's going to be in the Tuella Valley. Um, we even joked when we first learned about it that the church was going to bulldoze the beloved restaurant Vergs in order to build it. All kinds of funny things. But the church actually released more photos about the entire development around it, which is way more involved than you might have assumed. This is not just going to be a temple. The church is actually going to build um, a lot of, like, it looks like some soccer fields and housing. And the church is no stranger to residential real estate by any means. Um, But there's going to be parks, community centers, trail work, and just straight up housing tracts as part of this whole temple project, which is kind of fun because if you see where they're building the temple, there's nothing there. I mean, there's nothing out there. It is, it's a good location because it's equidistant between the main cities involved, basically Tuella, Stansbury Park, and Grantsville. It's a nice place between all of them in mm-hmm. Erda. But as far as, this is not abutting any other development. So I'm really curious to see how much uh, development this might spur in the area because there's very, there's, there's some, spaced out housing around it, but that's it. So it's funny to me to put in a whole sub development, a subdivision yeah. rather. Yeah. Just packed in right there around the temple when there's nothing else around it, which leads me to assume that Erda's probably going to grow. Now is the time to buy land in Erda, people. You <laughs> yeah. will get a return on your investment. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So uh, I thought it's kind of cool. Um, let me just uh, talk a little bit about uh, the retirement of uh, Richard Turley. Okay. Uh, he has been, uh, what's his title? Uh, church historian, but he's, he's, I don't think that's his official title. Uh, he, well, he was the, um, he's also been the managing director of, uh, of PR, I think for the church. Love late. Yeah. I'm confused, but in, in any, he's, been, <laughs> he's been like in charge of history. He's, I think he's the senior pro- you know, professional, not ecclesiastical historian yes. of the church yes. and uh, smart guy. Uh, he's kind of known for two books that he wrote. I have read only one, uh, but he wrote about the, the massacre at Mountain Meadows, an American tragedy. And then he wrote uh, Victims, the LDS Church and the Mark Hoffman case. And which one did you read? I read the Mountain Meadows Massacre one. Me too. That's the one I've read. I've not yeah. read the Mark Hoffman book, at least not his book. Yeah. Yeah. I read a different Hoffman book as well. Um, but the Mountain Meadows Salam- book. Salamander, probably. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember. There are a bunch that were written. I only read one, but Devin, real, real, real quick for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Mark Hoffman saga. Can you give us a reader's digest rundown of what happened there in the early eighties and why yes, it matters to us today? I, 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 uh, I shouldn't be as proud as I am, but I, I was connected to this story in some fairly close ways. Uh, uh, my father was friends with two of the people that were killed by Mark Hoffman. But Mark oh, Hoffman, geez. wow! Uh, Mark Hoffman uh, was uh, became a very famous forger uh, after his bombings killed some people. But he was forging a number of church history documents, and he he was very strategic about it. He started forging documents first that supported sort of the um, orthodox historical view of the church. And so the church officials, including President Kimball and uh, my friend's uh, father, Hugh, or, yeah, my, Hugh Pinnock was a general authority at the time. He was a friend of the family. And, and he and President Kimball were, quite convinced that these documents were authentic. And so they helped to establish Mark Hoffman's bona fides as uh, a sleuth for legitimate historical documents. And with that reputation burnished, then he continued to produce documents. And his most famous document was called the Salamander Letter. His most famous Mormon document was the Salamander Letter. And uh, so he wrote a a fictitious letter from the prophet Joseph Smith about uh, Moroni appearing in the form of a salamander uh, and sort of worked in some uh, really weird stuff interwoven with some of our conventional history. And, you know, I remember at the time being on my mission and having one of the missionaries in our mission go home. He was so freaked out by this letter. It was uh, it was a cover story in Time magazine. It was a big deal. It, and um, and then uh, Mark Hoffman forged a document called the Oath of a Free Man, which was uh, the first printed document in the United States. And he and there were only I think a hundred copies printed uh, originally. And Hoffman created one and he sold it for a million dollars subject to being verified as authentic. And the authentication process was taking a long time and he needed his million dollars. He, he was building a big fancy home and, and he got into a real financial pinch and it also he began to believe that the folks that were authenticating the document were coming to the wrong conclusion, and he was afraid of getting caught. And uh, I'm remembering some of the details, but uh, there were also um, a couple of his backers that had purchased some of the documents. One of them was a guy named Christensen that was a friend of my father's, um, and he was rumored, I don't know if he really had figured it out, but he was rumored to have figured out that Hoffman might have uh, forged the documents or that they might be forgeries. So Hoffman built bombs and blew him up. Christensen's business partner was a guy named Gary Sheets, who was also a friend of my father. And uh, so uh, Hoffman left a bomb for Gary Gary walked right by it. His wife picked it up later in the day and blew herself up and was killed. And then Hoffman either deliberately or unintentionally blew himself up with a third bomb. And uh, I don't know that anybody's ever figured out if that one was for someone else or um, if he built a little bomb that wouldn't kill him as a subterfuge to avoid prosecution. But in any case, after he blew himself up, all the pieces came together and he was arrested after he recovered from his injuries that were serious, but not life threatening. And uh, anyway, so that's a long telling of the story, but it was, it was a messed up period in church history because, you know, we believed and then didn't believe all this stuff. And to this day, I think there are still Hoffman documents that circulate as authentic that are not. Mm. 
And going back to Richard Turley, of course, he kind of hopped into the church uh, historian's office when a lot of the, when a lot of this had happened, right? I mean, I think a big part of his job was to pick up a lot of these pieces. Yeah. So yeah, he he came in right at right as that had happened, I think, in yeah. 1985. So it was just about the time that happened. So yeah, it was an interesting time. And of course, I thought his as I'd be interested in your take, but I thought his telling of the Mountain Meadow massacre story was brilliant and remarkably objective uh, and really an interesting read as well. So it was, it was, yeah, me too. Worthwhile. Well, another quick mention here so I can close my trib tabs because I have to put them in an incognito window because the trib has the dumbest website in the world. So everyone, um, little did you know, you won't believe this. A, a survey says, this is a Peggy Fletcher stack article. Utah is the second most biased state against non-religious residents, says a survey commissioned by the American Atheists. Yes, which we can get to a whole discussion of whether that just means atheism itself is basically its own church, but whatever. So uh, this just argues that after Mississippi, good old Mississippi, uh, the, there's Utah's the most stigma against non-religious people. Okay, it's it's tough to be secular in Utah and not be a social outcast of sorts, according to this data, which yeah. is interesting to me. It's, uh, it's interesting. I think. I think we're coming to terms with that. Uh, in, in recent years, there is an increasingly common reference to being kind to friends of other faiths and acknowledging that that includes people who don't aren't religiously observant. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's the beginning of a process of being more inclusive in our uh, friendships and just acknowledging that atheists are people too. And I think, um, not quite this, but I think kudos to the church PR machine, because while it's not atheism, I think we've gone out of our way, especially in Utah, to show how the church is partnering with other faith and civic groups on various initiatives, even if it's just a matter of getting each other's backs, even if it's just ecumenism, whatever. Yeah. And that's that's faith to faith. But it's not just to show that. I think it helps show the members— that we don't look down our nose at whether it's irreligious people or those of other religions. Cause I think just as well as it might be hard being an atheist in Utah, I imagine there's a, it can be difficult being a Baptist in Utah or a Catholic in Utah, whatever it might be. I mean, you find your community, but I think they've, we've tried to do a little bit quietly to demonstrate that we are, are genuinely friends with everyone and should be and should be nice to them. One of the challenges that we have in the church, and it's it's difficult for us because of our some of our long-standing rhetoric about the nature of apostasy mm-hmm. and leaving the church, is how we treat former Mormons, who are, after all, now just people of other faiths. And um, so I was intrigued by an update in Glamour magazine, which I read all the time. Ha ha! Just kidding. Uh, I I would have believed it. You've got a beautiful beard. You've got a great uh, whole. The whole whole thing's working for you. So, So, uh, but there was an update about Kate Kelly and uh, what she's up to, and uh, she is. If I read the article right, she is uh, with a woman now, uh, which surprised me a little bit. Uh, I'd never heard any reference to her. No, I knew she'd gotten divorced, but um, is it sad that that kind of that almost plays into the stereotype expectation yeah. given everything that was going on with her five six yeah. years ago? Yeah, it 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 does play into uh, our maybe stereotypes around how we understand her story. But um, one of the things that she's working on now is a national campaign to end child marriage, and I was stunned by a. a, a a fact in the Glamour article said that there are only two states that outright ban child marriage. Huh. You know, we think about child marriage as a problem in other countries. And yet in 48 states, with permission from mom and dad, you can get married uh, as a child in 48 states. I find that shocking. And uh, so I'm hoping 
the world to get behind Kate Kelly, or at least behind her movement uh, to change those laws, because there really is no good reason for people to be getting married at 15. Like I had a friend, I had a friend who got married at 15 uh, when she got pregnant years ago uh, when we were kids. That was absurd. Absurd. You would think, yeah, that too, if you get pregnant, but you would think Utah of all places, maybe I'm just thinking about this the wrong way. You would think Utah of all places would think about this in particular as a way to thwart polygamy. I mean, I know the state, I don't know what the what the mood is in the state legislature in terms of kind of always looking the other way with this. And obviously they've decriminalized it now, but mm-hmm. but even so, this is an issue with children who are sometimes entered into these sorts of relationships. So how are you stopping or at least playing some role in stopping that from happening if you haven't at least made illegal child yeah. marriages. And I'm yeah, assuming does this does this very clearly you don't want to now, give parents permission to make a decision like that, especially in a polygamous community where people might be under undue, especially financial influence, uh, as they were in some communities where the they kind of are observing some form of uh uh you know communal living. And your financials are all tied up with a prophet who says, oh, by the way, you know, your 13-year-old needs to be married to me or to one of my apostles. It's just gross. So, yeah, you know, banning child marriage would help to fight child abuse in those communities. Yeah, that's the idea. Did I ever tell you, you know, I served my mission with Kate Kelly, right? No, I'd forgotten that. I think I knew it and forgot it. I did. We weren't like really in the same areas or anything much. We, I mean, like I knew her, but that was about it. But uh, yes, I did. So it's very, it's always been very interesting to watch what she's been doing for the past handful of years. Because many of us say, "Yep, that's uh, that's Armana Kelly, just uh, doing her thing." Good, <laughs> good times. Yeah. Good times. So she was always a little outspoken, huh? Yes, that okay. much is true. Yes. That much is true. Well, now I want to talk about something much more important. Creamier, if you will. <laughs> That's right, creamier. I want to talk a little bit about peanut butter. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, I almost live on peanut butter. Uh, and, you know, I usually eat my peanut butter with a side of peanuts. So this is a really important story for me. And uh, so the church operates a big peanut butter plant in Houston. And they do it in partnership with Feeding America. And so one of the interesting outcomes is that the there are only three employees in the plant. And all the other work is done by volunteers. And most of the volunteers are not LDS. That last little fact is very interesting to me. Yeah, I think that yep. is fascinating. Fascinating. It's a, good, it's a good little bit of press here. So I mean, yeah, great little bit of press in the uh, the most local of <laughs> newspapers. It might be for this. Uh, it's called the Community Impact Newspaper. Uh, yeah, Houston. Uh, but everyone knows you shouldn't support local papers because they're just terrible, they just, right? Yeah. Don't support. Only support the big ones that are owned by corporations. Everybody, that way you know that you're getting the most consistent messaging. <laughs> I like to say things to make Devin upset. I'm going to trip you up so that way when you inevitably debate John Curtis, yeah, things, get, things get real. It's going to be off the chain. We should have a debate on here. John Curtis, Devin, and that angry Constitution guy, you should all show yeah. up and we'll talk. Yeah, we should. That'd be fun. Let's do this. Invite him. Okay. And then I'll prove my lack of prowess in <laughs> debate moderation. It'll be fun. Oh, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Also, the church doing other good stuff here, helping working, I guess, with the Salvation Army in Hawaii, donating food to feed the hungry in Hawaii. So Salvation Army, with the support of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, will provide approximately 1,200 families with fresh food for meals, fresh produce, and more statewide. So that's great. And this this happened particularly over Mother's Day. And it's a challenging time for many people. Uh, Hawaii's been hit bad with COVID, not just because of the disease itself, but because the tourism industry has been decimated, right? And that's a that's a lifeblood of the economy across many of the islands. So this is great that we're getting busy in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, I, uh, 
I know we're getting running out of time, but I thought there was an interesting article written by Jana Reese uh, in her Flunking Sainthood uh, blog for the Religion News Service. When will she have flunked Sainthood? It's been a gerund for years, Jana. How long can this continue? I, indefinitely. That's the nature pick, of the gerund. Pick a preterite tense. <laughs> Yeah, that's your beef with Jenna. <laughs> so I, I actually was pretty excited. It, it, it was a very thought-provoking piece, I thought, about uh, Mormon feminism and how it's evolved over the last 50 years. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it was an interesting exploration of, of feminism and how it's uh, sort of embodied a larger um framework around uh you know race and culture as well as uh all things feminine so anyway i thought it was interesting uh and it's you know i think the point is well made uh women are talking in the church about these issues and the question is are we men listening to do you think she wrote I'm look, I've looked at the piece. Do you think uh, she did? Yeah. I was wondering how much she was inspired by that recent piece in BYU magazine uh, all about women's roles and whether women are listened to. Did you see that one from a couple weeks ago? I missed that one. That was a great piece. Uh, we've discussed it on here. That was, it was pretty impactful. They did original research at BYU about whether or not women are actually listened to in professional settings and church settings, whatever it might be. So I imagine that sort of inspired Jana. In this yes, regard, I suspect you are right. She was listening to you talk about this, and that's what motivated her to write this article. I actually have a red phone in my office. <laughs> Just for Jana? It calls her directly. Yeah. There you go. That's great. All right. Well, we're about going to wrap it up here. Um, Devin, do you have anything else to bring to the oh, party? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just uh, a little thing I would invite. We're working on uh, some relief for uh, the Navajo community in uh, Southern Utah. And uh, so if you are of a mind to help, uh, reach out. Cool. That's great. Reach out to me and I'll be happy to coordinate with you. And let's see if we can't uh, make sure that the the Navajo community has been especially hard hit by the COVID virus. Uh, You know, the, the whole Navajo nation is really shut down. There's no economic activity at all. So no one is earning a living you know, the grocery stores are closed. So people are literally going without food. Uh, So these are really difficult times. Anyway, if you can help reach out, please. Uh, How do they reach out? So come on, you're a politician now. Drop, drop, drop. Come on. Any way you, any way you want, but Devin at Devonthorpe.com is my email. 801-747-9575 is my cell number. Text or email. Just however you want to reach out, please do. Are you on signal so we can do this encrypted? No. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) It's okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, I don't know if we'll link to this exact. Do you want us to link to the Google doc you have right here? I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I do. Because it's it's probably where we're going to add more information about the coming weeks. Yes, you should put your contact info in the Google doc and then we'll link to that. Yeah, so I'm going to put it in there right now. That sounds good. That sounds great, everybody. Help out in any way you can. Uh, These are still trying times for many, even as we're trying to ease our way into normalization. But it's going to take time and we have to be cautious. And there are many who are still suffering and who, uh, like Devin said, who are not as fortunate to have like I am. Like I have a job where I'm just teleworking and my life goes on. And a lot of us are in that boat, but there are a lot of people who are not. And we need to be mindful of them. So please join us at thisweekinmormons.com where you can find the notes for this show, links to any of the stories we have discussed, as well as a beautiful link at the bottom of this episode to go to Patreon where you can support TWIM with like two bucks a month. Two bucks a month. That wouldn't even buy you something at Starbucks at the Democratic Utah National Statewide <laughs> Gathering. Whatever it might be. Give the money to us instead so that we can pay server fees. Someday I want to build a new website and that's not free. You get the idea, right? And I know they say never buy something on the promise of what it will deliver later on, but don't apply that logic to TWIM. Definitely buy for the future. Okay. That's right. Um, and join us on Facebook.com slash This Week in Mormons. This Week in Mormons on uh, Instagram and at the real twim on Twitter. And we are very thankful for all of you spending a few minutes with us this week. And if you enjoyed it, please send us an email contact at this week in If you did not enjoy it, 
then please email Devin. <laughs> um, that's going to be it. Hope you'll subscribe if you haven't done so already. Devin, thanks for being here this week, buddy. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Happy to have you here. Good luck again with your campaigning. Thank uh, you. Good luck to sleep this week. I'll survive. It's okay. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm glad I'm teleworking right now. It makes it a lot easier. If I had to get up at six, like I do when I go to the office, that would be way worse. So we're okay. We're very blessed. And all of you are very blessed. Thank you again for being here. Until we meet again, be well, be holy, and be happy.